It's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. With your host, Jamie Dew. Chief Librarian, Thomas Senna. And featuring, Matt Ardill. And now, Curator of the Hall, Jamie Dew. Oh, boy. Thank you so much, Doug Nats. It's me, it's me. Jamie Dew here, the host and curator of the SNL Hall of Fame and SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Uh, I'm glad you could make it this week. Before you enter the hall, though, would you please wipe your feet? (laughs) I don't know why I said that so sultry. Uh, Your feet are dirty, you know? There's nothing sultry about that. Um, So... You know, there's there's that. The SNL Hall of Fame podcast is a weekly affair. Each week we take a deep dive into the career of a former cast member, host, musical guest, or writer, and add them to the ballot for your consideration. Once the 30 nominees have been announced, we turn to you, the listener, to vote for the most deserving and determine who will be enshrined for perpetuity. This week, we are talking Paula Pell. This is going to be an interesting one. Uh, Paula Pell, uh, writer for the show uh, for a number of years. Um, Not going to be an obvious one, but when you dig deep here and listen to what our friend Matt says in his Minutia Minute and what Dave Buckman reveals in the conversation he has with Thomas Senna, then the stage starts to be set that this is a real player. And this is somebody that needs to be, you know, thought of in a, in a transcendent sort of way, not just another cog in the wheel, but this is somebody who elevated their game and elevated the games of many others in the hallowed halls of, uh, we're at 30 Rockefeller Center. So there's that. Let's jump right into Matt's Minutia Minute so we can get to the conversation between Thomas and Dave. Hello, Matt. Hello, Jamie. What's uh, going on this week? Uh, I am looking forward to talking about one of my favorite writers, Paula Pell. Paula Pell. Great. Okay. Well, let's hear what you have to say in your Minutia Minute. Yeah. So Paula, uh, born. April 15th, 1963. She, her first episode uh, was September 30th, 1995. That's season 21. So that's when uh, Jim Brewer, Will Ferrell, Daryl Hammond. Uh, so that, that cast, you know, we had Chris Kattan uh, and Colin Quinn and Fred Wolf as the featured players. Um, her last show uh, that she wrote for was May 17th, 2014, season 39. Um, so she wrote for the show on and off for 18 years. Wow. Um, yeah. So she took one year off in there. Um, but you know, she's created some really awesome characters, Debbie Downer, uh, the Spartan cheerleaders, Justin Timberlake's dancing omelet. Uh, that was her creation. Um, but yeah, she, she's one of those 
powerhouse writers that I'm has only started to come to the public forefront uh, with with people recognizing her talent. Uh, but she was always respected in the writers' room. Um, what she was. The second woman head writer after Tina Fey, one of only five women head writers. Um, and uh, when she got the call, uh, she was actually working as a singer and dancer at Universal Studios in Orlando. Uh, so she literally hopped on a plane the next day from Universal and, and went to work in New York. Um, I guess so. Holy yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, I'd say that's a step up in the entertainment world from uh, uh, from a singer dancer at a at a showcase in, in in Florida to one of the most you know most historic comedy stages in in the world um yeah and i mean and she's one of the things is she's always been super respected um tina fey has worked with her on multiple projects uh so has amy poehler uh tina fey in her biography talks about one of her proudest moments is when she really fought for one of Paula's sketches, uh, classic Kotex, and how that's kind of one of her defining moments as a as a head writer is fighting for these other writers to have their voice and get their get their sketches in. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's run a Writers Guild of America for best comedy series, uh, working on Thirty Rock. Primetime Creative Awards uh, for SNL, WGA Awards for SNL. Um, you know, she's just been a, a real workhorse of a comedian. Um, she's now in Girls Five Eva, uh, which is moving right. to Netflix. Yeah. It was on Peacock, but another Tina Fey project, and she sings and dances on that still. So uh, she is, yeah, she's amazing. Full um, circle. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You weave a fine tail, Matt. <laughs> well, she's she is an amazing, funny comedian, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about her time on SNL. super excited about this episode. I think she was one of the unsung heroes when she was on SNL. She wasn't front and center, but she was so instrumental in the show's renaissance in the late 90s, and her impact spanned longer than almost anyone in that era. So Dave Buckman, I'm curious, why did Paula Pell stick out to you when thinking about nominees for the SNL Hall of Fame? Oh, I think she's just an amazing writer. Her body of work, her work ethic her support by everybody that worked with her. She was there for 18 years. And just to put 18 years in perspective, that's a, this is a Keenan's 18th season that we're taping this right now. Wow. So as long as keenan has been a cast member and we all talk about that right now, right? Yeah. That's how long Paula Pell was in the writer's room and putting up championship style sketches and repeatable characters. Everybody that was there agrees that she was the funniest while they were there. And you can tell by her body of work that I'm going to read you off a list of 
the other things she's worked on before we get into the SNL stuff, but this is what yeah. she's done post SNL. And you see if you can tell me a common theme between all these titles. We got Girls 5 Eva. We got AP Bio. We got Maple Worth Murders. We got Parks and Rec. Documentary Now. The Colin Quinn Show. Funnier Die Presents. 30 Rock. Inside Out. Big Mouth. Bless the Hearts. Sisters. Other People. Wine Country. Bridesmaids. Anchorman 2. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, all, all great 40. comedies. Yeah. All great comedies. A lot of SNL tie-ins. A lot of SNL alumni mm -hmm. hire Paula Pell when they want to bring the funny. Whether that's producing, whether that's writing, whether that's acting, you bring in Paula Pell and you're going to make it a better project. Yeah. That is why Paula Pell deserves to be in the SNL Hall of Fame. And on a personal note, this is why I love her, right? She's an entertainer and a writer. She's smart and she's dirty. She has a distinct voice and a writing style and she's relatable. She's warm and she's biting. She's specific and she's broad with her comedy. She's inappropriate and completely appropriate. And her work just speaks for herself. Definitely. And I think it's interesting you brought up the first aspect is, you know, being a performer and a writer. She was actually interested in being a performer mm -hmm. on SNL, right? She Before thought she, she was going to be job. a writer. Or yeah. She thought she was going to be a performer. Right. And they brought her up because she was performing live in Orlando. She was at Disney performing at the um, private island at Disney. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, what's it called? Uh, it's like doing, oh, Pleasure Island, Pleasure Island. Uh, and the Pleasure Island, which is not as sexy as it sounds. It's more like <laughs> Branson than Vegas. And it's like this wholesome New Year's Eve every night. If you've seen The Simpsons, uh, that's what it's like. Uh -huh. uh, a lot of improvisation, a lot of radio shows, a lot of singing. So she was seasoned by the time SNL was doing a cast changeover. You know, this was the year they brought in Adam McKay. This is the year they brought in Will Ferrell. This is the year they brought in Sherry O'Terry. This was Daryl Hammond's first year. Uh, Steve Higgins is the new head writer, and they find her in Orlando, Florida. That was that was an interesting yeah. era of SNL. I mean, we talk about the Saturday Night Dead headlines throughout SNL's history. That was one of the moments where that was actually close to being legit. That was mm -hmm. Sandler's last season and Farley's last season. Sort of like the the bad boys were kind of leading the show and probably not always in the best direction. <laughs> uh, so you're right. right. Like she and came in in that really big changeover season. This crew was like, this is it. We got to we got to deliver, or it's, this thing mm -hmm. is done. And it's happened a couple. Like I think Lovitz kind of saved it in '85. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Will Ferrell and Paula Pell and this crew and Adam McKay saved it in this uh, in this era. Yeah, so she started in 1995, as you mentioned. So we can get into a little bit of, of her SNL work. What are some sketches? Like, where do you kind of want to go as far as as far as Paula Pell? I mean, she's behind some stuff that people probably don't even realize that she played right. a big role in. And these are the things that when you look on a montage of Saturday Night Live characters, one, if not many, are there. Mm-hmm. So let me just read you this list of uh, things, memorable things she's created. Classic Kotex commercial, Tylenol BM with Alec Baldwin, <laughs> the boy band Six Degrees Celsius, Appalachian Emergency Room, Justin Timberlake's Bring It On Down to Whateverville mm -hmm. mascot, the first Sheila Sauvage sketch, which is actually based on Paula Pell's mother. And that was uh, Kate that McKinnon. Kate McKinnon's. Yep. The Culps, which is uh, Anna Gasteyer and Will Ferrell at the piano. 
Gilly, Spartan Cheerleaders, and Debbie Effing Downer. That's quite the quite the heavy hitter lineup that that people didn't realize that Paul Appel was behind. So the cheerleaders, I think, were super important to SNL. Uh, as we had mentioned, that was an era of the show that really needed to hit some home runs, and they really needed to get national attention. And I think the cheerleaders were some of the first characters to really do that. I mean, Sherry O'Terry and Will Ferrell came up with these characters, but in talking about Paula Pell, I think one of her big strengths that she showed uh, here with these characters was helping people punch up their ideas and really mm-hmm. peppering it with a lot of color. So what did you make of the cheerleaders back then? Back then I was happy that Saturday Night Live was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I felt like stability, somebody you can come back and count on, you know, like uh kind of the way Billy Crystal would use those characters week to week in his season or just something that you can kind of like, or Eddie Murphy would have those recurring characters. You can kind of get a sense of like, Oh, these people are working together in different combinations to twosomes to kind of like capture America together. And Paula Pell, that sense of collaboration, that sense of down to earthness, the people, the people that she creates are people we all know in our society. They're just, you know, amplified a little bit, a little more cartoonish than usual, but we all know these cheerleaders. We all know a Debbie Downer. We all know a, a, a pair of the Culps, you know, we all know a Sheila Savage somewhere out there. These are just heightened versions of those people. Um, and she's so good at creating those uh, kind of relationships and kind of fun things that the hooks, you know, if you will, those, uh, the dance choreographies and rhymes and cheers that they would have to write each time, mm-hmm. you know. Oh my God, Craig, do you realize the tryouts are in seven hours? Yes. I can't believe we snuck into the gym to practice our cheers. Yeah. How did you learn to Jimmy Adore? Where else? MacGyver. <laughs> <laughs> I use my retainer and a small piece of twine. <laughs> Good work. You want to kick it? Let's do it. Spot and check up. Take a chance, drop your pants, pee in the cup. Dr. Spot is in the house and he will fix you up. Break it down now. Talk FEMA. Take it up. FEMA's rising. Time to cop. It's fun and engaging and it's. You know, it can get a little bit temp- template-ish, but those sketches work on a level because they use patterns and they use call and response and they break up the activity with energy. And it was just fun. It was just fun. Like Dana Carvey fun. I think uh, when people describe sketches as having a template or they know all the beats, I think sometimes they mean it in a negative way, but it's actually not. I think whether people and viewers know it or not, I think they enjoy knowing the beats uh, of, uh, of of sketches. It's very, it's a meditative kind of thing. So the cheerleaders had that. We talk about Stefan, who's like one of the most loved characters in SNL history. We all knew the beats of, of the Stefan weekend update pieces. What's up with that? So there's just so many examples of, I think when these sketches have those beats it's sort of meditative it's, it's comforting and we can they're kind songs. of play along with them they're songs exactly they're songs they're, and the recurring ones are sonnets you know what i mean like they're a way for us to communicate with each other bond over certain kind of rhythms and 
I don't mind hearing the same song a hundred times. I don't mind hearing songs that sound similar to each other, like in a concept album. Yeah. You know, you can string all the <laughs> the uh, <laughs> all of the uh, culps together to make an album of yeah. just fun melodies that are all just like it can make its own concept album. Like it's it's okay to repeat templates because it's people like that. It's just a chorus, verse, verse, chorus uh, energy. You can speak on that, especially being a sketch comedian yourself and being in the sketch comedy world. And I think from a viewer's perspective, it's even though we know the beats, it's it's about the jokes. If 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 the jokes are good, that's what matters. And Paula Paula Pell yes. seemed like a master of the jokes. She seemed like a master of filling in those beats and peppering things with just the perfect. She's so specific. Yeah, um, you know the characters are broad, but the jokes are specific, and I think that's what makes a Paula Pell sketch as um, somebody who can kind of step back and see how a sketch is created or put together. It's masterful how broad these characters can go and be very specific with their choices and their references that kind of pull you in as to what kind of person they are when they're not in the sketch. I know who the cheerleaders are when they're not in the sketch. I know who Debbie Downer is and the choices that she would make when she's not in the sketch. I could go around acting like Gilly because I know how Gilly responds to everything. It's a very specific point of view that each of these characters have and they don't deviate from it. You know, they each have their own thesis statement and you can count on them for that behavior. That's what makes them comedic characters. You can count on them for this very specific fatal flaw that each of them have that will probably kill them eventually. Because it'll be so annoying to somebody, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. I've, I've, I get the feeling that Paula Pell uh, knew that too. She knew these characters. She, there, there was. Yeah. I think she was efficient. She and Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry, whoever else was writing these sketches, they were so efficient at explaining who these characters were. Like with the cheerleaders, just by the simple fact that they weren't on the official cheerleading squad, you know a yes. lot about them with just that one little piece oh my of information, yeah. right? Yeah, they, they had ambitions and we knew their dreams and we were sharing the dream with them, you know? Yeah. Think about the Appalachian Emergency Room where um, I just keep imagining what that town must be like now after the opioid crisis, but there's so many just peppered recurring characters within that little small community and they would all have so much fun just playing new ones and having repeatable ones and right. just populated a world where we never got to see this town outside of this one emergency room shift that Seth Meyers had to work every, we always get Seth Meyers a shift for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but each of those characters are so well-defined in a matter of one line of dialogue. We know everything about them. Well, here's our thing stacked up. My wife here was out on the porch spray painting some curtains for our van. Yeah, I don't like people picking in the back of my van. And I was way up on top of the roof, taking the Christmas lights down. Yeah, we like to keep the Christmas lights up until the Halloween. <laughs> so, here I was directly above while she was doing a fancy project, and don't you know them paint fumes crawled right up and astoxicated me? Yeah, he, he, he was pretty astoxicated before he got up there. That's Paula Pell's genius, that we, she can have you, pull you into somebody's point of view with a line of dialogue. Yeah. it's so specific. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And I think a lot of writers throughout the show's history 
in many ways, you can hear their voice. We did an episode earlier this season on Jack Handy, who has a super specific voice. You know it's Jack Handy. Um, a right. lot of other Michael O'Donohue has his voice, good or bad, he has his voice. What would you say makes Paul Appel like, distinct as a, as a writer? Like, What traits of Paul Appel really stick out to you? Jack Handy and Michael O'Donohue are not relatable. They are distinct mm-hmm. and unique and... E- geniuses and sometimes evil geniuses uh dennis miller also very distinct right but also not very relatable i have to pay attention to their point of view in order to get the joke when paula pell writes in her very distinctive point of view i know it's a paula pell vibe when i'm watching the sketch and it's completely relatable humor it's something that i've experienced also i don't have to like get in the mind of paula pell to understand the joke I have to be myself and I get the joke because it's these are people that I can see in my everyday life. Yeah, so we almost share a mind with Paula Pell and that's how exactly. we understand the joke. Instead of having to get in her mind, we okay. sort of cohabitate the same mind. She's already in our mind. She already right. knows how all of us work and she knows how to exploit that part for, for humor. Yeah. And God bless her for doing that. Yeah, and she was so great at collaborating too. We had mm-hmm. mentioned collaborating with Will Farrell and Sherry O'Terry in the cheerleaders, the Culps, again, Will mm-hmm. Farrell, but on a gas dyer. So, you know, Completely they had these characters. Perfect for those two. It's mm-hmm. like a perfect, like exactly how you couldn't write a better sketch for the two of them together. <laughs> I don't think for the characters to play together. You know, college is a time in which parents have to let go, stand back, and watch the seeds they've planted blossom. So with that in mind, we'd like to share a few lessons we've learned from the University of Getting Down. (laughs) Megan, honey, this is for you. Oh, crap! One, two, three, four. She's a very kinky girl. You don't take home to mother. No, you don't want to take her home. She will never let your spirit oh, down. Oh, oh, oh. Once, Once you get her off the street, she's a super freak. She's a super freak. Super freak. She's super freak. So spot on their chemistry, their interaction. What is funniest about each of them in that musical world, and to be able to have them collaborate like that, it's. It's great, and it's wonderful, and the songs are so funny, and I bet they had a hell of a fun time writing those things. Oh, yeah. But also, not only that collaboration, but think about, you know she's collaborating with Justin Timberlake on these Bring It On Down to Whateverville mascot songs, right? Who's hungry for a rootin' tootin' fresh? somebody say they were hungry? (laughs) We got She's going up against one of the premier songwriters and entertainers <laughs> of our time and collaborating on a sketch that makes him look so silly and funny and he's having the time of his life and he gets a recurring character. How many hosts get recurring characters? Not many. Yeah. And not even many trust. in the Five Timers Club have recurring right. characters. Mm-hmm. That's even a special thing in itself. Timberlake could do his own best of episode 
and she's writing songs with him um, and bringing out the funny in him, which is amazing. Yeah, of course, you know, she she helped him do Omeletteville was 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 the first one, mm-hmm. Homelessville, Liquorville. So mm-hmm. all these, you know, Vills, all these templates um, that she collaborated with Justin Timberlake on. And, and you're right. Like, I think Justin Timberlake probably saw a writer like Paula Pell and felt like she was in his mind or they shared a mind too. She's such a chameleon in that way. Like, I think she could work with most people and find something well, here's where she out. got that. Here's where she got that experience. I'll tell you, when she was working at Disney, she was one of the people that would walk around in character and do full-on characters with regular everyday people. She would improvise with everybody. She would do Comedia dell'arte improvisations around the streets. You know, very physical comedy, but also interacting and doing voices and characters in those theme parks. So. She got to meet a lot of Americans face-to-face, and some of them would play with her, and some of them would hang out with her. And, you know, she had a seasoned training ground of improvisation, mm-hmm. character work, interactions, people, Americans, cross-section of humanity in the time before she got up to Saturday Night Live. And she brought all that with her. You match that with Will Ferrell's sheer genius for using volume and status. Uh, to create comedy with Adam McKay's satire. The show that Adam McKay had just finished at Second City was maybe one of the most biting satires they'd ever produced and to this day and since. And he brings that energy to Saturday Night Live. And the three of them combined, uh, and then uh, literally a year later, Tina Fey shows up, and boom, the whole thing is back to respectability. Of course, we can't cancel this. This is an institution. These are stars. NBC got their shit together. They started locking these people down to contracts. We lost a Sandler. Sandler's blowing up. Let's lock in these future geniuses and brand them Saturday Night Live. Yeah. They're losing it. And yeah. that's what saved. And that's where the entire thing shifted from, is this going to get, uh-oh, the, the writing's bad. Maybe it'll get canceled too. This will never end and we're going on forever. Shifted into a different gear. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm if it's because I'm a certain age and the Will Ferrell, Paul Appel kind of era was when I was in high school. But it seemed to me that even even more so than the great era of the late 80s and early 90s, that that specific Will Ferrell, Paul Appel era of SNL appealed to a, a broader audience. I mean, my favorite, I think my favorite era is probably still like the early 90s and such. But I think... I don't think that maybe had as much of a broad appeal uh, Here's why. across Paul ages. Appel. It's Paul Appel. Appel. Yeah. Think yeah. about what would have happened if Paul Appel and Tina Fey weren't there. If, if Paul Appel hadn't squeaked that door open for Tina Fey to take over, because no way Tina Fey's coming in there. I mean, she was, she was going to take over regardless, but Paul Appel had a year or two ahead of her and kind of like got that voice in there. Because if you think if Paul Appel was not in that original crew that came in, and it was just Will Ferrell screaming a lot and Adam McKay's anger mixing. And that's all we had. And we didn't have Paula Pell just like bringing the charm and the sweet and the funny. At the same time, I don't think it would have been quite as relatable. It would have still been a boys club. And uh, I think she kicked that door wide open for an amazing run of female focused centered forward comedy. Yeah, that's such a great point. We needed that other flavor. I mean, we all love Will Ferrell, but there was 
if it was just him in and of himself. Get off the shit. There was, right. There Get was a lot of shit. bubbling. There's a lot of bubbling <laughs> anger <laughs> and a lot of Will Ferrell's performances, which is great. But you needed somebody like Paul Appel to really bring out the more silly, relatable side of someone like Will Ferrell. Yes. <laughs> Like Emily Spivey does with uh, Bust the Hearts. It's that mm-hmm. kind of emotional pull. And I, I was wondering, we had talked about her, you know, get, having a training ground as a performer and all that. She was surprised when she only got offered a writing job on <laughs> yeah. SNL. Uh, I, I was wondering, just kind of play SNL fan hmm. sort of fiction, I guess, in a way. How do you think she would have done as a performer? On SNL, mm. like what kind of what her what would her role have been if she did I get hired? I don't know that America performer. was ready for her at that time. <laughs> Why is um, that? I'm trying to think, like, oh, because it was such a broy energy in the country. Because we were just this was pre Lewinsky, just just pre Lewinsky, and it was just very broy. Farley and Sandler on top of the box office. Yeah, I wonder if she'd have been able to have broken through. I want to think that she would have, of course, because the characters that she would have come up with for herself would have been amazing. She would have been in the Culps. You know what I mean? Yeah. She would have been um, in that cheerleader sketch. Or maybe maybe not, because that was Sherry Terry's character. But you know, she would have contributed a new era of what female sketch comedy was, because I think up until then, female sketch comedy was... Uh, you needed one blonde and one brunette, maybe one minority, and uh, they should all they should have different color hair, and one should be pretty, and one should be not as pretty. Yeah, <laughs> and that was how women were viewed in mm-hmm. sketch comedy at the time. She would have been completely different from everybody else that was writing their own sketch comedy. A hundred percent, it would have been a completely different voice. I would have hoped that she would have. And it was also a very weird, hard time to be gay in show business as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is also pre-Ellen, and I, maybe it was pre-Ellen. How when did Ellen? She I was around out? the same time. I think Ellen maybe came out on her show. Let's say ninety-seven ish. Yeah, it was yeah. around that time, and that was huge. Oh, that was a like, big. I, that was a huge. That was deal. huge. Looking that back from twenty twenty eyes, that would of... seem ridiculous that people were making such a big deal about that. But at the time, you're right. <laughs> that was like three or four weeks of public public talking about it uh, on on CNN, like before and after, and and that was and to have somebody who was out. I mean, of course, Terry Sweeney was out, but he only lasted one season. And mm-hmm. try as unbelievably talented. I just watched that season. Unbelievably talented as Terry Sweeney was, and as hard as he was trying, he could not like break through. Um, and he was a veteran. Uh, he had written for the show at that point. Anyway, um, yeah. I wonder if she would have had to suppress that side of her or if she would have gone straight for it. I think yeah, in a way she did suppress it behind the scenes. Like not too much. I don't think she felt she felt bullied behind the scenes. Like she right. couldn't talk about it. But no, she no. just never really lived too open until – I mean she started yeah. in 1995 and she, as she tells it, she kind of came out – officially to her co-workers in 2001 when they were writing the homosil right. do you remember that homosil fake yes. ad yeah that was wonderful uh so that was that aired in february of 2001 and as she tells it james anderson was writing that sketch and paula pell was of course in the writers writers room helping to punch it up and they were wondering during the writing process, some were wondering if it was okay to air that homicidal ad. And Paula finally kind of like voiced her opinion and said, well, 
I'm gay and I'm telling you right now that this is the most queer friendly thing that you will ever have on the show. This is perfectly acceptable to air. So she she kind of came out <laughs> to her coworkers wow. to advocate for a sketch that she really but believed in. That was in. six years of working right. day and night with people. Right. And well, I don't know do you that know? she, That's, you know, maybe she wasn't afraid like to come hiding. out yeah. totally, but she, I don't, this may be something that she never really talked about to everybody. So, but as she tells it, that was, mm-hmm. you know, writing that homo ad was when she really you know, so expressed it. And brave. Good for her. Yeah. She's yeah, nice. definitely. And it was for, for an ad that I remember to this day, <laughs> 20 years later, that's still, that's still such great satire. Paula, if you're listening to this, thank you for doing that. For those who haven't seen it, the premise of the ad is helping parents cope, calm their anxiety. Quote unquote, yeah, calm their anxiety when they're realizing that their children are gay. So there's like different seven or eight years old. So there's seven or eight year olds mm-hmm. walking around doing kind of gay stereotypish things, and their parents are just like, "Oh no!" Having this like look of regret, like, "Oh no, what's happening?" And they're getting it, and they're just taking these pills to kind of like calm their nerves about what's happening and Mm -hmm. it's but very funny yeah the button on that sketch was because it's your problem not theirs yeah so that was like you know (laughs) there's nothing wrong with your kid being gay it's your problem here's a product to help you out for this that's why paula pell was advocating for that so much and called it queer friendly you know drop the fucking mic (laughs) exactly yeah exactly so yeah no i would have i would have loved to see paula pell's voice as a performer on SNL and have somebody who's gay, you know, you know, other than Terry Sweeney before that. And uh, yeah. I think Denitra Vance. Paula Do we get Pell. a Chris Kelly without Paula Pell? Yeah. Right. Wow. So I was thinking about Paula Pell too, in terms of how she was able to collaborate with, with so many different eras of yeah. the show. I mean, there was the, she, she was a writer on the show 95 to 2013 so she worked well with, we already mentioned Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry, Anna Gasteyer, host Justin Timberlake, but Kristen Wiig mm. was, I think, one of the important collaborations that Paula Pell had. Yeah, they did Gilly together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was, was Kristen Wiig's kind of idea. She, I think she was just talking to Paula Pell and said, I want to do this character who has just like a weird dance. And then Paula Pell just sort of started riffing on that. It was just one kernel of, of an idea for a character. I mean, when Kristen Wiig comes to you because she has an idea for a character and she wants help with a character that she can't get out. Kristen Wiig can't get a character out of her head. Who does she go to? She goes to Paula Pell exactly. to pull out maybe her most iconic character. The one that gets Kristen Wiig on t-shirts, on mugs, on SNL uh, montages, every single montage, like you have a gilly in there, of course. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a Hall of Famer sketch for Kristen Wiig, completely given birth to by Paula Pell. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, Kristen Wiig, like I said, had that kernel. Paula Pell helped her flesh it out to like, uh, what if we made Gilly to be this demon child? Gilly. <laughs> Gilly. Uh-huh. Gilly. Did you throw that milk carton? Sorry. Her name is Gilly and she's at it again. Causing lots of ruckus like a barnyard hen. She's always bringing trouble. Her hair is like a bubble. Knock, knock, who's there is Gilly? Sorry. That was a lot of Paula Pell's doing. And a lot of people don't realize that. And I think we're getting better about that. 
as far as knowing which writers had a hand in mm-hmm. what and giving writers credit for sketches. Yeah. But especially in 95, it got better by the time Paula left in 2013. But throughout her tenure, we didn't always have that information as fans. Yeah, a lot of times you just thought that, right there. yeah, a lot of times you just thought either the head writer helped out or the performers wrote yeah. entirely. We didn't have access to the amount of information that we have about Saturday Night Live until the mid 2000s i think like it was dark i mean you had to like research you had to like go to encyclopedias you had to like you had to buy every book that had the word saturday night live on it to find out more about behind this like i had so many saturday night live behind the scenes but i had every single one you could possibly find and i read them all before the internet and now we get to kind of know i know more about how to put on that kind of show than i ever did into the, yeah. the first 25 years of watching it I was telling uh, our guest for the Jack Handy episode, Andrew Clark, that we had such little information uh, in the 90s that when I was a kid, I used to think that Jack Handy was a pen name for like Al Franken. Like I didn't think that Jack Handy was a real person. Uh, Of course, we would have known in a split second nowadays that yes, Jack Handy is a real person. But back then, you can still you can still think something like that because you didn't have adequate Mm -hmm. information. So I I think it's nice to see that Paula, when she started, it was still kind of in the dark ages. But by the time she finished, she was getting a little more recognition for what she had hand in and you could see that as well in uh i don't know if you've seen this um the james franco behind the scenes documentary about snl how how do i find that i i think it's somewhere on youtube i think you could find it in the shadows of youtube uh somewhere i've watched it a handful of times um if it's still that's on as good there. of a plug it's gonna get <laughs> yeah exactly i've watched it a handful of i'd times like to see it i haven't seen it it's I good see it. I no it's really good okay. um and so there's a moment a funny moment in in that documentary where paula pell's sitting at her at her desk and she's trying to find the right fart for a sketch so she's like <laughs> playing different farts and paula pell's looking at the camera and looking whoever's in the room is like oh what about this one i don't know and she said does this one overstay its welcome and she's just kind of making comments on all these different <laughs> fart sounds for this Kristen wig sketch that she's helping to write and it was just such a great wow. peek into into paula pell's just sort of demeanor when while she's writing and i think you know the internet things like that snl documentary by james franco kind of helped push the writers i think Mm -hmm. a little more into that (laughs) into that forefront but i mean watching that documentary is so rewarding even just for that paula pell moment (laughs) alone it's so good I'll, I'll, i'll look it up now she also collaborated i don't know if you remember the Susie orman sketches Oh yeah, with with, I didn't with know Kristen that. Wig. Yeah, she was a collaborator on those as well. And you had brought up a great point about Paula being relatable and having a it seemed like she had an insight into a lot of people. And she added the details about Susie Orman that for some reason Susie Orman was into Southwestern decor. Yes. And dressed that way and all of that. And Susie yeah. Orman actually visited the show one time and said she loved this character, the, the sketches that they did on her and stuff. And she said something like, well, I'm not into Southwestern decor, but everything else that you made up about me is actually correct. How did you do that? Yeah. So she was so she was impressed yeah. with Paula Pell and Kristen Wiig for kind of pinpointing a lot of uh, her personality. And I think Paula Pell just can read people, it seems like, so well as a writer. 
Yeah, that's her talent. That's her. That's her genius. Yeah. So, is there anything uh, else uh, as far as her SNL career and uh, about her that you think we should touch on? Here's some quotes from people that worked with her. This is from Maya Rudolph. She's been the funniest person we've all known the entire time we worked at Saturday Night Live. All of us. This is an Amy Poehler quote. Paula would be in a room with the funniest people, SNL, cast writers, Alec Baldwin, whatever, name the host, and Paula's the funniest. She's a killer. She's a king. She's a queen king. Those are people who were around her every single day. Yeah. On the show. And yeah. those are some... Maybe those are, I'm going to say, that's, those are the two funniest women that have ever been in Silent Live, I think, Polar and Maya, yeah. and they're saying that Paul is the funniest. Yeah. So I got to bow down. I'm going to bend the knee right here, right now. I'm going to bend the knee to Paula Pell. Put her in the SNL Hall of Fame. Oh boy, that is great. We should end every episode with an Amy Poehler quote. Uh, that was uh, right on right on target, you know? Um, really cementing the idea that Paula Pell not only should be nominated here for the SNL Hall of Fame, but should be strongly considered. You've only got 20 votes. It's going to be tough. But... Paula Pell, when you think of all those characters that she's behind and uh, all the laughs you've probably had at her uh, writing, unbeknownst to you, um, yeah, really, it really jumps out at me. Now, we're going to play uh, the sketch now that uh, Dave and Thomas talked about in the um, in the episode, in their conversation that they had. And it's the, it's the Paula Palace sketch called Homosil. Um, this was interesting because, uh, and, and ultimately the reason this sketch was chosen was because Paula is gay and advocated for moving forward with the Homosil sketch because she said it was maybe the most queer friendly thing that had been on the show at the time. Um, Saturday Night Live has always been known as, you know, sort of bro culture and uh, very bro-y. And the story that was told in the episode uh, of her, you know, coming out to, to make the point about this particular sketch shows, you know, that uh, she has conviction and she, and she believes in it. And, and ultimately, it, it, what she was feeling was the, the, the right thing. Uh, so there's that. Let's give it a listen now. This is, uh, this is homosexual. Do you suffer from inexplicable anxiety? Are you confused and upset? Do you have an overwhelming feeling that you've done something wrong? Hi, Dad. This is called a double Susie. You can't control whether he is or isn't, but you can control how it affects you. Homosil can provide relief from parental anxiety disorder. Homosil can help. If you obsess about things you can't change, if you are unable to cope with unforeseen developments, Look what I made. Isn't it fabulous? if 
you avoid prolonged contact with your children due to these overwhelming anxieties. Who wants creme brulee? When taken regularly, Homocil dramatically decreases parental anxiety. We made a touch the touch the go until you come around. Because it's your problem, not theirs. Oh boy, that is fantastic. That is uh, a work of art. Uh, as a parent of two children, uh, parental anxiety disorder, uh, you know, really rings a bell. Uh, doesn't ring a bell in this particular stratosphere, though. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool with whatever. Um, that's what we've got for you this week on the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Uh, I hope you uh, learned a lot from uh, Dave Buckman, our special guest this week. And uh, as always, uh, our friend Matt Ardill with Matt's Minutia Minute and Thomas Senna, our chief librarian and, and head converser. Uh, he gets into those uh, converse? <laughs> no. Conversations. That's what I'm looking for. He gets into conversations. Golly gee. Yeah, I don't know if anybody even listens to this part. So if you do, that's great. Uh, rate and review the podcast. That would be really awesome. We would love to get some five-star reviews uh, and ratings. Uh, you can do that uh, anywhere you click. Uh, one of our links, one of our kite links. So there's that. And that's what I got for you this week. So uh, if you're wandering down the hallway past the weekend update exhibit, ready to make a left-hand turn at the llama and turn out the lights on your way past because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed. Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Make sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at SNLHOF. This is Doug Denant saying, this is Doug Denant saying, see you next week. Podcasts and such.